Hi there! Have you ever wondered how journalists craft their stories? Or how yoga teachers prepare their classes? Or you always wanted to learn about the secret tricks of product developers or chief people officers? So did we! And voila! Offbeat on Air was born! We're Lavinia and Millie, your hosts for the podcast meant to shake the L&D world one offbeat story at a time. Every episode we will take you on a wild exploration of the coolest professions around. So buckle up and enjoy the ride! Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of Offbeat on Air. I have firstly with me Millie. Hi Millie! Hey lovey! Good to resume where we left. <laughs> yeah, so and... This episode is actually a very interesting episode because we usually have one guest, but because we like experiments, um, we decided to invite three people for, for this episode, but there's a reason for it. So there's something that we noticed in our industry, and it's a tendency to either go freelance like right away maybe people got laid off and decided to hey I'm gonna try things out I'm not gonna go to a full-time job uh, just now or even do it as a side project and I think there's a lot to learn for people from people who already did this so we decided to invite people that we know and appreciate uh, and it's Sarah and Luke and Liam and before we jump into like the nitty-gritty of things, I just want to say hi and uh, ask all of you to tell us a bit about where you come from and uh, what are you currently doing. And I'm going to start with you, Sarah. Uh, hi, I'm so excited to be here. This is so fun to always be, it's fun, always fun to be part of a new experiment, right? So glad that I am here and so honored to be here with everyone else. So my name is Sarah Kinestra. I am an L&D career and executive coach, uh, as well as a fractional chief learning officer. I've been in the L&D space for the last 14 years. And yeah, I really focus on helping people in the L&D space find, land, and thrive in their L&D roles. So I noticed there was a need for you know, we're the cobbler's kids with no shoes. We've talked about this before too, right? How do we continue to grow um, in our own careers since we're always so focused on everyone else's? So that's what I've been doing now for the last um, almost four years, which is crazy to say out loud. Yeah, so there's a lot that you can share from this journey and I can't wait to to like actually see, uh, hear about your story because I think we see a lot from all of you. We see a lot of like the LinkedIn or the newsletters or the podcast, but it's, it's harder to actually understand the journey. Thank you, Sarah. Luke, uh, over to you. Hello, yeah, and also very happy to be part of this experiment. <laughs> I've, uh, I've hosted two guests on my podcast, and so three is is a, is a step beyond where even I've gone. Um, so I'm interested to see how it plays out. <laughs> uh, so I am I'm Luke uh, Omani, and um, I spent ten years in talent uh, and people operations. So the last role, traditional role, I guess was head of people and operations in a payment solutions startup in Birmingham in the UK. Um, and coming out of that, again, without going too much into the personal story, having left that role, I had a bit of a left or right decision. Do I go back into another startup and do it again? Or do I follow this entrepreneurial itch that has been uh, been residing within me for quite some time? Uh, and I, I chose the latter. So um, I now have a, a platform. Uh, of content courses and community for progressive people ops, essentially. So my whole vibe is how do we take lessons from other business areas, such as product and marketing, 
and put that into product-led people operations. So that's what I do. And very intentionally, uh, a solopreneur, which is one of the things that we want to talk about today, but very intentionally scaling a business of one rather than a traditional startup. So that's me. Okay. So two things. The first one is the solopreneurship. And I think we can talk about that. And then uh, you you bring another like area because you're in the people space, you're not specifically in L&D. So I think uh, more people can listen to this episode and, and have takeaways. And finally, uh, Liam, if you can share your a bit of your story. Yeah, thanks, Lavinia. Hi, um, hi everyone. Um, I feel like I'm benefiting more than most from this because I'm, I'm, uh, I'm, I am at least in freelance terms the baby of the uh, the baby of the group. Although um, uh, if we were on video, you'd notice I'm uh, uh, in other respects not so much. Um, I'm based in London. Um, I have been working freelance now for about uh, six or seven months. Before that, I spent about eight or nine years in in-house learning and development roles in uh, different types of companies. Um, I moved into learning and development more broadly in about 2010. I sort of started my transition. Prior to that, I'd worked in the entertainment sector for about 15 years. Um, so a little bit of a shift, but actually I've noticed quite a lot of crossover, particularly in terms of working in sort of values-oriented um, organizations. Um, these days, well, I guess my route into learning and development was through coaching. So I did a master's degree in coaching and mentoring at uh, Oxford Brookes University. Um, and that's really sat at the heart of my work for um, the whole of that period since then. And I I've kind of come back to that um, a lot more since starting the freelance work. Um, and I guess in broad terms, and I guess we're going to talk about defining an offer, um, I'm still kind of working through mine at the moment. Um, but at the heart of that is kind of coaching, now coaching supervision, um, uh, developing experiential management development and helping HR and L&D leads in sort of busy organizations, particularly in standalone ro roles to um, get the best out of the people around them and out of themselves as well. Oh, wow. This this work or like your work is so inspiring from all the perspectives. Um, as Lavinia said, we follow you through different channels and I feel each of you brings so such a nice offering to L&D professionals like myself as well. So first, I want to thank you um, for doing that. I think we really needed all the layers that you're bringing, uh, bring it on. And um, I think what I wanted to just maybe zoom in quickly and reflect together uh, is some pivotal moments on this journey that you shared that brought you to this decision. I want to register my business. I want to register as a freelance. So if you think back, what were the conversations or things that made you decide, okay, I'm going for it because it was not an easy decision to make. So maybe whoever wants to start first can go and give us a little glimpse uh, into that. I'm happy to, to go first on that. I, I think this resonates with a lot of people, especially in the global job market that we're in right now. Uh, I was working for an organization that I really didn't align with their core values. And I just felt that it was, it was, it was a really toxic work environment for me. And I remember sitting one day 
thinking about all the things that I would change or do if it was my company. And I kept saying, well, it's not my company. It's not my company. And then a, a moment just came and said, well, I could start my own company. You know, and it was kind of like a, <laughs> like, yeah, okay, that's a good one. You know, could continue on, right? <laughs> but the, the more that I realized how my values didn't align with that organization, the more I realized I could create something for like for me or for people who have that same values as me. And that's why for me with my business, in the beginning, I said, how am I attracting these incredible people? And it, it baffled me. But then I realized it's because I'm so true to my values that I'm attracting people who also have those same values too. So for me, it was that moment of, wow, I, I can't really find what I'm looking for and so can I go, can I go create it? Um, much easier said out loud than done. But for me, that was that, that pivotal moment for me of, I can't find it. I'm losing myself in the process of working at this company. I didn't know who I was anymore, but I, I had the the shred left of these core values and I knew I could take those and do something on my own. And I wasn't even sure what that looked like. Um, but that's, that for me was that pivotal point where I said, wait a minute. I could be, I could be my own CEO. So that was, that was my kind of aha first time moment of thinking, okay, let's do this. Oh, inspiring. I'm happy to jump in next if, uh, if that's cool. Um, it is inspiring and thank you, Sarah. This is going to be really fun for me as well, listening to Liam and Sarah's respective stories. So thank you for bringing this together. Um, yeah, similar really in the sense that I was, it wasn't so much a values misalignment, but I had an exit from that startup that wasn't entirely fun. <laughs> it wasn't, you know, it was, it wasn't a time that I would have chosen, but, you know, it was the right decision for everyone involved. And so it kind of forced me to rethink where I was and the value and impact that I wanted to have. Um, I was originally thinking, well, startups are really fun hard as it is it's really fun so I'll go and do that again like that was what I was originally thinking and as I was interviewing for new positions heads of talent heads of people within startup scale-ups it just it just felt like something was missing like there was something an opportunity that I wasn't exploring to scale my impact right because if I go into one business I can impact everyone in that business and you know well meta perspective the customers potentially but that's now the universe I can influence is that company whereas actually I had a lot of ideas that I wanted to codify and share and to try and scale that impact to a much bigger audience and so for me that was where I got to it was do I continue down this path and add value to a single organization or is the way that I can codify and package the things that I've learned along the way to help others have a greater impact on more people through a sort of consequence of uh, butterfly ripples, I guess. Um, and that, that, that was it for me. I always had an entrepreneurial itch, like I mentioned, like from a very young age, I had always said, I will, I will own my own business one day. I'll run my own business. I was the person that was watching undercover boss and going, yeah, I'll be the CEO one day. <laughs> but actually, I don't want to do that anymore, like in that traditional sense, which is where solopreneurship comes in, which maybe we'll circle back to. But I always had that entrepreneurial itch and I thought, if not now, then when? I've got this opportunity. I'm not currently in a job. If I dive back into one, at least that's going to be 18 months, two years, three years where I'm going to be unable to do it. So that was for me the, the moment. Let's just do it. And so start of March, I made that decision. And then by the end of March, I launched Save Your Next with a website, a brand, 
first version brand it's all changed now but <laughs> i launched with a website and a brand that was the moment that um that safety next was born and uh, yeah several iterations since but that was that was the origin so yeah liam yeah i um so i would describe myself as an accidental free freelancer um <clears throat> Um, I had left my previous job, uh, in-house job back in April last year, and I'd originally been looking to find another job, but I couldn't find something that really, um, fitted. And, um, I was starting to think just practically really in terms of earning a bit of money. And I started, I was working with a career coach at the time, um, and started to think about what I could do just to keep the money coming in while I was looking for something else to do. And the more I explored uh, working for myself, and the more that I talked to my sort of friends and contacts and peers um, in the, particularly in the coaching space, the more it sort of settled as an idea to, uh, to do it. Yeah. So six months later, here I am. Most of us are accidental some things at some point, so congrats. But look, I want to go back to you because you mentioned something that I'm curious about and actually curious to hear from, from everyone. You mentioned this entrepreneurial itch. Can you describe a bit what that is and how do you think like of an entrepreneur and what like are the characteristics of, of someone who jumps into this space and what they can expect? Yeah, I can only yeah, I can only really talk for myself, I guess, rather than general characteristics, because I'm I'm finding that there's a lot of shared characteristics amongst entrepreneurs and solopreneurs and a lot of difference too. Um for me, it's increasingly I understand what my entrepreneurial itch is is creation. Like it's creating things and scaling impact. Like that's how I can now define what that itch is. And so if I'm not if I'm not creating something original and sharing something with the world and trying to have some sort of impact that goes beyond my immediate reach, that's kind of how I'm now defining it. And it's a, it's a, it's a definition that had you asked me when I was that, you know, teenager with watching, you know, undercover boss wanting to be the CEO, I would have given you a very different answer, but I now understand myself and, what that feeling is a lot more strongly uh, and in, in terms of some of the characteristics i think one of the things is developing a relationship with risk that not everybody has mm -hmm. and so i've learned and again it's always been there but i now i've got better ways of articulating it and and executing on it but i don't see risk in the same way that many of my friends do for example so let's take this solopreneurship venture. The worst case scenario, it doesn't work out, right? Worst case scenario, no one buys my things, no one joins my communities, can't get enough revenue, can't pay the bills, I have to cave it in. Worst case scenario. What, what, what have I lost? Because <laughs> everything that I'm doing now is making me more employable, not employable. All the experiences I'm gaining are making me richer from a an experience perspective and from a character perspective not weaker everything that i'm doing is building my network so that there's going to be more doors that i could open after not less so like risk is always something that i know it's a very individual and personal concept but for me this sort of risk doesn't it, it's not one it just isn't one 
which makes taking the decisions a lot easier. It allows me to take more business risks without feeling like there's much of a, a real consequence sort of you know from a that isn't recoverable right like there's nothing that i could do here that isn't recoverable and if i needed to get a job tomorrow i i could with the network and and platform that i've built get one so i think that's one thing that you have to i think is is shared amongst all solopreneurs and entrepreneurs of some description is that appetite and relationship with risk that is slightly different to how most inverted commas normal people um would would see risk in that sense that that's that's very very interesting and uh, and i was reflecting on my own journey as well and i feel like it i didn't have a relationship with the risk but as time went by I, I was like surprised by how stretched out i can like i can be when it comes to to risk uh, so uh, thank you but um now, because you mentioned something, and and uh, both um, both Liam and Sarah mentioned uh, about offering, like okay, you decided to jump into doing this, but the first question is, like, what the hell am I going to do? And we all have some like some skills, but you have to be ready to sell those skills or those products, those services. So I wonder what your journey was um, with defining exactly what you're offering and and sarah you were the first one who mentioned that so if you can walk us through through yours yeah it's such a journey and i think it's the biggest thing that i think can sometimes stop entrepreneurs solopreneurs from even getting started is like what 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 do i sell you know what what do i actually do to make money because we're not doing it it's not volunteer work right it's entrepreneurship it's solopreneurship so we're we're looking to gain gain money from it i think that's an important thing for people to remember too in the beginning right like you're doing this so you can make make money that's what most businesses need to do in order to stay afloat and so you obviously need to have something to sell but i think what happens is people get really caught up on I know I did this too, of like thinking that what I sell now is what I have to sell forever. And so it's, it, it can, it can be very restricting and very stressful to think what I'm creating right now is it like, it's going to be my business for, you know, the rest of my life. And I'm selling this one thing. And so for me, I always looked at what I sold from an iterative process. And I always said, okay, I'm going to like, I'm going to do this once. I'm going to see if I like it. And if I like it, I'm going to try to sell it again. Um, and if I don't like it, I'm not going to sell it again. And what's interesting is as my offers have, have iterated, and I'll, I'll share just some more about that in just a second, but I, it also creates this, this type of demand. I've had people say to me, like when I've offered something, I know I have to buy from you now because I know that you might not offer it again. I might, but I might not because for me, I can't offer things that I don't like to offer. You know, I, so like it, it, it's really remembering like, what do you, what, what feel, what are you called to do? So for me in the beginning, it was one-on-one -on -one coaching. That was what I, I was called to do. It's what I wanted to do. It's what I liked doing. And I did that and I iterated that and I did I tried different lengths of containers. So I did three months, I did six months, I did four months, right? I was just playing around with it. And I think that's the biggest piece is play and have fun. And if you're playing and having fun, other people will want to come and play and have fun with you also. Um, but then I realized, hey, I, I'm, I'm building a demand here so I can do now a one-to-many. So that's when I started to move into more group coaching. And I did an eight-week long group coaching program. And I did that 
two or three times. And I realized, hey, you know, I'd like to stretch this out a little bit more. And so then I had a six month long program and then I realized that ah, that's too long. Right. So like I, I can iterate as I went along, but then it moved from one to one to one to many. And then I said, okay, well, I'm at a place now where I have a platform where I can go one to mass. Right. What does that actually look like? Um, and I had a coach who said to me, you know, when you're thinking about that one to mass, it's the question doesn't become, well, what happens when I get one more client or two more clients? It's what, what am I building now that could hold a thousand more clients, right? But in the beginning, you don't have to think about that. All I thought about was the next person, the next, you know, the next person that's coming in and the person after that. So don't get too caught up on the one to mass. I see that mistake all the time. People are like, okay, I'm going to just go, go all in and create something for that a million people could join or do, but you don't even know if you want to even do that. So what happens if you get your million people and now you're stuck with a million people doing something you really don't want to do. So have fun, play around with it. You can change it. It's your business. That's the best part. If you decide tomorrow, you don't want to do it. Stop doing it. That's for me. It's like that freedom of, and it goes back to, to what Luke was saying too, right? Like for me, yes, it's the risk and the creativity, but it's the freedom to be like, nope, I don't want to do that. Or hey, I really want to try that. Let's see what happens. I must just jump in how much I love this because like I'm sitting here like nodding. I think you brought this uh, very lightness to that and playfulness that I feel I'm not a, like I have little side thingies that as, as looks as scratch some itch that I have. But I think what you just said, it's really, I know it's hard work and there's more behind that, but this, you know, not seeing it like an end street uh, bring such a nice view to it. I just wanted to comment on that. Thank you for sharing. Um, I'm happy to add to that as well. And, uh, and Liam, do jump in. I know that you're at a different stage of perhaps this, so it'd be really interesting to hear actually where you're at. Um, but because mine's very similar to Sarah's, I just thought I'd, I'd, I'd bolt on because I've also taken that sort of iterative uh, approach to to product development. And when I first launched as a as an entrepreneur, uh, I thought what I was going to build was a, I had two options in my mind. One was the service-based consultancy. So build and scale teams delivering services to end clients. And the other was find a, uh, the, the, relevant, the right problem to solve for people to teams and then secure investment to build a tech SaaS product that would enable people teams to work better. Those, those were the two routes that I thought were available to me and when i set out in that route i i firstly found that b2b sales of consultancy is really difficult because there's so many people doing it um and so i had to find a different mechanism to to put myself on the map which for me was through content creation which we can talk a bit about at some point um and then also scalability i realized very quickly that if you're running a consultancy model you can you can only trade hours for money, right? And so that's that's a finite sum game. And if you want to increase revenue, you either increase price or you increase the amount of hours that you're prepared to work. And with someone with a young family, that was not looking particularly appealing to me. So then it's like, well, if I want to scale consultancy services, then I have to hire teams to deliver those services. So then you're managing teams and scaling people. I don't really want to do that either. Much as I've, obviously I love it and it's my wheelhouse in terms of expertise i actually don't want to do that for the freedom reason that sarah mentioned and then the same goes for securing investment and scaling tech product that's a minimum five to ten year hole <laughs> that you're gonna to have to throw yourself into and you may come out of it intact or you may not so all of that wasn't particularly um 
exciting me and I was getting a bit nervous about have I done the right thing and then I had a really amazing piece of advice which was the the value here is your thinking and not your time so think about how to scale your thinking and not your time and that's what led me to go hmm okay similar to Sarah so I'm currently trying to do b2b sales which is my time to a client and trying to maximize that actually is there a way that I can package my thinking and present that in a way that is B2C essentially to the end consumer, which for me is the people practitioner, the, the, the other heads of people, people that are in my position, which is what led to my first cohort-based program. And then through a series of iterations, that actual proposition changed. Also the scale of it changed. So going from eight people to now having 20 people on it, originally just a workshop-based to now being a fully async course with live. So the actual product itself has evolved massively. And then where I'm at now, in terms of scale, I actually cohort-based programs are still limited in terms of your scale, because you can only have so many people on them and they still require some of you, even if you get really good at the async elements. So now I'm mid beta for the first fully digital and async version of that product. And that has all been informed by what my community are telling me is important to them. What are the challenges that they need solving? And those are the products that I'm, uh, those are the, the, the problems that I'm solving with the products I'm creating. So it's all sort of directed by, rather than assuming what the end customer needs, as Sarah alluded to, and building a product that you think you can get into million, it's like, what actually is my ideal customer profile? Who, who exactly am I building for? Which for me is essentially the first time head of people in a startup scale up. That's my ICP and that's allowed me to accelerate that process of product development really quickly and build an audience really quickly with those people because I can speak directly to them because I am them, I was them. And then the, what that allows you to do is focus on your ICP for your product and audience build, but you're then gonna pick up people in that wider viable market and in, in, and in time, that total addressable market, but you start with your ICP really focused as narrow as possible hyper value to a really really small group of end users and then look at your lateral opportunities and build out from there that's certainly been my process so far support for offbeat on air season three comes from sana sana is the end-to-end learning platform for modern people teams the former head of people growth at French health scale-up Allen has said that Sana redefines what people expect from a learning platform. Their tech and UX has leapfrogged the industry. Go check them out at sanalabs.com slash offbeat. I'm not sure what I can add to that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I, I think, uh, I, I mean, I guess I've heard both Sarah and uh, Luke talking and there's some really great kind of um some real kind of wisdom in that and i i think i i sort of summarized what i was hearing um in terms of you know what what can i do in the time i have available to me that meets a need and that keeps me interested um and i guess those are those are kind of the questions that um that i'm answering at the moment and i it's really and i wonder actually i curious about whether there's maybe a little bit of a bias in terms of the type of uh, uh, entrepreneur and type of business you've got um, with the three of us talking here, because I have a real sense of this um, sort of motivation around um, 
evolving and iterating a product to maintain our own kind of interest as well as to meet um, to meet someone's need. Um, I was talking to my dad last night, actually. My dad was, uh, he ran his own business, um, like a, a successful business in a declining industry um, in the old world um, for about 25 years and uh, very, very different. He ran, he ran a printing company. Um, so it's a very kind of product um, led, um, not certainly at the time that he was running it. Um, things changed since then, but certainly at the time he was running it, um, kind of quite static in terms of uh, what it is so we're living in a very different world and I think I, I was thinking about that yesterday while, while I was talking to him in terms of not only in terms of um, uh, the work that I'm doing but the way that I'm going about the work that I'm doing the running of a business I have to keep that interesting to me um, because if I don't keep the, the running of the business which is most of the doing of the business um, interesting then um i'm going to lose interest and i think you know if we're talking about risk that's that's a big risk oh i also wanted to pick up on something else as well i think it's interesting that uh, talking about risk um so i'm at a, quite a different stage of life i think probably to sarah and um luke i i hit 50 last year um and so the things that are significant to me um um, not just my kind of motivations and those sort of things, but the things that maybe I perceive as a risk, you know, at my time of life trying to, um, I think probably part of the difficulty that I had finding a job in-house um, that suited me was probably down to my age and experience and uh, and that kind of thing. Um, so the risks for me are slightly different. I'm also probably a bit further down the line in terms of home ownership and uh getting rid of some of my financial uh responsibilities my partner and i don't have kids and those kind of things and all of those things are really significant in terms of how we think about ourselves and the work that we do and, and that kind of thing and and there's one final point i'm going to stop talking in a second but there's one final point it, i think it might have come off what sarah was saying but um and in fact actually both sarah and luke were kind of alluding to in a way this this idea of uh you know if you're if if we're younger getting into this kind of work there's real um uh there's real experience to be developed and i think one of the key elements of learning uh that's really absent from people in organizations is that financial element it's like Sarah, i think sarah said it we're here to make money we have to make money because we're going to survive it's a very different perspective to being in an organization and i think precisely the kind of um uh, ethos that people in organizations need to to kind of get to grips with uh, a bit more as well. I want to jump in here because I, I think you touched on something very interesting, Liam, and I, I just wanted to very quickly share from my experience. So um, I, I, I have never, I had never thought of my relationship with money before being an entrepreneur because it was never an issue. When I uh, left my parents' home, I got employed quite quickly. Money started coming in for the work that I was doing. And whether I was productive or not, you know, something like I could have been, I don't know, sick or been on holiday and money was still coming in. So I, again, I never thought about my relationship with it. Once I became an entrepreneur, 
that became a very important topic to reflect on and go to therapy on, to be honest, to understand how is my relationship with money enabling me instead of um, making me less productive, making me anxious, making me whatever I was feeling at the time. So um, I think this is a, a topic that everyone who wants to jump in should think about um, even before they they do. Can I just add, say one thing to that, that I think Liam brought up, which is so, it's so real to me right now. And I hope people listening, you know, like really to me, this just meant a lot hearing you say this, Liam, too, about understanding the different seasons of life that you go in, right? That like you are still a human and you're going through those seasons of life. So for me, when I started this business, my husband was fully employed or he was my my boyfriend at the time, he's now my husband, but we, you know, we had just moved to Austin. We had a much lower cost of living from living in LA. We were living in an apartment. We were, you know, we, we knew we were going to get married eventually, but it was the middle of the pandemic. We didn't have a lot of expenses. Um, but then life changed and we bought a house and we got married and my husband was unemployed all of last year. And we're talking about having a family. So now I actually, I, I'm looking at entrepreneurship and I have to ask, is it, is it going to be, I don't know the answer to the question yet, but is it the right choice for the next season of my life? Right. It's been really great for me in this season of, you know, the pandemic and for you know moving and, you know, a new relationship and all of that. Right. But then you think about, okay, the next season. So Liam, what you said really resonated with me of there's a seasonality to it too. And it's not just about, do I want to start a business or do I not? There's so many more factors that, that go into it. And those factors can change too. And again, that is the beauty of entrepreneurship is that anytime you can say yes. And at any time you can say, you know what? it's not working for me right now. So what, is, what does that next step look like too? So Liam, I really got that from what you said too. And um, it really resonated with me. I think, yeah, now, now that you're reflecting on it, I think I'll add to my time element too. So I don't know if I've, I don't know if this contradicts any of that or is, is um, an alternative view or not. Um, but I think that time can be, or timing can be a always be a good reason not to do something. So I think you also have to be careful with your relationship with that feeling of it's not the right time, because that can prevent you from ever taking action on the thing that you really want to. So that's my slight caveat there is to have a good mechanism of interrogating that feeling of timing and having a, a spouse or a partner or friends or people to discuss that with is, is useful. But then again, also be mindful not to take on board their fears when considering. So it, there's there's a little bit of complexity at that timing point. I would say it's not like a finite, it, it's like having children. There's never a right time, <laughs> never. <laughs> um, so, but there is there is, there is is a point when time runs out, unfortunately, uh, you know, so it, it's the same with this kind of thing. Like you have to, there's lots to consider. And just to add my flavor to this, my timing wasn't awesome <laughs> if we were going on pure timing. So I we had just when I found out when I found out that I wasn't gonna have a job anymore, we had just com um completed on our new house, which was going to mean triple our monthly outgoings. Um we had a toddler who was starting nursery and we were pregnant with our second child. <laughs> so like timing wise like everything would say go and get another job <laughs> but I also have the benefit of having the best wife in the world who's like no way like you're not going to be happy doing that go no 
do do that entrepreneur thing like that's what you want to do and I, I i think that's also really important like having the right people that can support you along the way like my wife's amazing and any anytime that i'm doubting my capability she's first one in line to say you got this you've done it before you'll do it again come on crack on um so that that helps me so my timing just for the time piece was not good but it was never going to be good if I if I waited. And actually, really, I wasn't in a job. I had a small runway with a with a with with some payout money. Actually, it probably was the best time, despite you know pragmatically not really being so on paper. You know, so that's my that's my flavor on the time timing discussion. But every every contribution from Liam and Sarah absolutely valid. And yeah really interesting to hear other people's starting point and, and perspective on that. I can totally speak to that because I had had it in mind, you know, after my next job, I'd been thinking ahead to sort of consultancy and, you know, working for myself two, three, maybe four years time. Um, but it didn't happen that way. And as it turns out, this is the best thing for me. And if we're talking about our partners and, uh, uh, the people around us who care for us and um, who also experience the ups and downs of all this stuff. Um, I can say that my partner is deeply happy that um, I'm working for myself and enjoying it as much as as much as I am. So, and that's a really important consideration as well. I think the impact on the people around us. It's it's not a um, um, uh, it's not a small undertaking working for yourself it's it can be um you guys are making it look easy obviously I'm still on my way but um it's uh, <laughs> but it's um yeah it's not I'm yeah I'm sure that you will agree it's a it's not a small undertaking and it takes a lot out of us and and out of the people around us as well and I think actually that's probably one of the things that I recognized and maybe um where some of my ambivalence about it in the past has come from having watched my you know, uh, see my dad and my parents' relationship and um, uh, they're still very much together and uh, probably happier than ever. And, and probably happier now that he stopped uh, working <laughs> for the last 15 <laughs> years, 15, 20 years. But, you know, yeah, it really does. It, it, it's got great, great benefits to it, but also other considerations as well. And can, uh, actually, uh, I wanted to ask something about something that you, you just said, Liam, because when you look on social media, for example, you tend to see lots of the positives. I did start to see another generation coming in and talking about the less um, beautiful things of running an, a business, a startup, or being a solopreneur. But I was wondering if there are any other stories to share about the... Um, yeah, the doubts, the the anxiousness, the or any other feelings that that you you had about this, Sarah, and we we can start with you. Yeah, every day, uh, <laughs> and it's so interesting, right? Because I get what Leanne said, right? It's like people say, "Oh, like you make it look so so easy," and uh, um, I hear that I hear that a lot. Um, having been doing this for a couple of years, and every time I every time I hear that, I'm like, "But it." Like, I'm glad, I'm glad I fooled you all, you know, like I was like, man, you know, like, wow. Woo. All right. You know, and I talked to my husband about that. Like, I'll, I mean, I'll be real and raw on this podcast. Like we were talking about it last month and it's like, 
you know, like, I feel like there's an image of me on the internet of if people see the, the ease, right? And then I'm like, behind the scenes, I'm you know, figuring out like, where, like, what do I do next? And what does this look like? And why aren't people buying this? And a lot of that came from, from last year was the hardest year I've ever had in business in the couple of years that I've been in this. Right. So like, for me, I made 40% less last year than I did the year before. That's significant. That's a lot of money. Um, to, to, again, we got married, we bought a house and all of these things in that same type of year too. So it's really, to me, it was a very stressful year, um, I kept going, right. I kept doing the things that I know worked. I was, you know, I pivoted the things that I, I saw like wasn't working, but you know, it's, it's challenging. It's really hard because what I'm realizing now too, and kind of the, the, the not a crossroads necessarily, but I've moved very far away from like the work and I've moved a lot closer to marketing the work and selling the work and doing taxes for the work, right? It'd be like, you know, it's like, I'm the, I'm the accountant, I'm the marketer, I'm the salesperson, right? So it's like, if you are in solopreneurship, you are those things. And I have some people on contract helping me here and there, right? But you know, it is my business and it's my name and it's my personal brand. And that's a lot of pressure. Like that's a lot, a lot of pressure. And so, you know, for me, I'm, I'm looking now at like, okay, what, like, what is it that I want to be when I grow up? Right. Like I've, I've, I just turned 36. So I'm still young. Right. What do I want to be when I, when I grow up? But it's what I'm doing now, actually helping me get there. You know, what kind of life do I want to live too? And so, you know, I don't believe in entrepreneurship at all costs. You know, I, I, my husband and I have these conversations often of, okay, what's the type of life that we want to live is what I'm doing or what we're doing, getting us closer to that. And if the answer is no, which the answer is no right now for my business, it's not getting us closer to that. But then the question becomes, but is it, is it worth it? And that's okay. Right. The, the trade-off could be, it is worth it. That means our life might have to look a little different or, or be a little different. You know, maybe I'm not getting my nails done every two weeks. Right. Like there's different things like that. So I think it's important for people to understand that it's not that paycheck every two weeks. It's not like there's months where I do really well and there's months where no money comes in whatsoever. So I think it's just really important to keep that in mind. And um, the biggest thing for me is I'm really working on not taking those months personally. So like, that's, that's the biggest thing. It's a, I'll just go into, well, everyone hates me. Well, okay, well, well then, you know, like, what are we doing here? Um, it's not the case. It's business. Right. And luckily I have a, my husband went to an amazing school and with his MBA. And so he's, he'll put the, his MBA hat on and tell me, you know, not businesses don't go up every single month forever and ever and ever. Like that's not how the, the world works. So he, he helps to bring me back down to reality, but for me, the hardest thing is not taking those bad months personally. And I am still struggling with that. And I look at last year, I took, I, I really took last year very personally. Um, but I can look at the economic conditions and understand why it was the way it was. But there's a, a disconnect between my, my heart and my head on that. Yeah, there's a, there's a lot I resonate with, with you on that, on that, Sarah. It's, um, it can all feel deeply personal, can't it? When, when actually reality is not and as, as you were just talking there so um, if you've ever if I've, I've done a few sort of uh, uh, long distance um, triathlons and stuff and as part of like the training journey you sort of measure and track your fitness levels but it's never like a consistent up like there's down there's peaks and troughs but the trend is up so as long as you're trending in the right direction like the individual days and months become less relevant as long as you're trending upwards which is a sort of analogy I like um 
Yeah, it's it's the, there's a few things on the doubting front. So there, as Sarah sort of joked, every day, like you have those moments every day, little things like, who am I? Why am I doing this? Why should anyone care? Why me? Um, those sorts of little moments. The the biggest hurdle, uh, and we can talk about this at some point. I don't. I won't dive into it now. But I I operate a a flywheel model for my business, a flywheel engine of growth. That's predicated on putting a lot of content out and building an audience around that. And one of the biggest barriers to doing that is actually getting over that feeling of no one, no one's going to take me seriously. I don't, I don't deserve to have an opinion. I, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not experienced enough for people to listen to. So, again, to that timing point, I'll, maybe I'll just go and get more experience before I talk about it. Now, here's a little hack that I learned from. Um, it was, I think it was Dickie Bush and Nick Cole uh, that run a company called Ship Thirty. Amazing solopreneurs, entrepreneurs. Um, one of their pieces of advice was write to the person that you were two years ago, which for me was super helpful because when I was a first time head of people, like there was a lot I didn't know I needed to know. So I started out writing most days as a first time head of people. I experienced X. And this is what I wish I'd known that would have helped me overcome, you know, and I found my voice and comfortability with that really quickly. And that then allowed me to build a voice of credibility with my audience, but also with myself as people then sort of validate and engage, ask questions. Can you hop on a call and share more? Yeah, of course I can. And you start to learn that you've got way more value inside of you than perhaps you tell yourself. So that's my little hack for anyone who's, who's doubting um, just, Think about what you wish you knew two years ago and what would, how could you get that information to that person? Because there's thousands of people that are going to need to hear it. So also a great product development strategy. <laughs> I, I really, I love that. I think that's, um, that's going to sink in for me um, over the next few days. And it kind of links into, I was making some notes as the two of you were talking there and uh, one of the things that I really love about the work that I do is that I get to write about the stuff that interests me. And my, uh, I mentioned the uh, studies that I did in coaching and mentoring originally and um, doing a more kind of academic course. I ended up doing uh, some research and that kind of thing. And I was always really interested in um, figuring out why I was doing what I was doing and what interests me. So I, I, um, I I think I managed to skirt the edges of narcissism, but um, all of my work in one way or another is really closely related to the things that interest me and, and drive me. And so when I started uh, tentatively um, kind of moving into this new phase back in the summer, and I was thinking about how I start to reach an audience, I, I, I made quite a conscious choice not to write um, not to follow the kind of patterns that I was seeing on LinkedIn, which is my main kind of channel of communication. Um, and I started to use the articles function on there. Um, and I noticed quite quickly that it didn't get as many hits or, or at least comments and likes and things like that than, um, than posting directly. Um, and it, I look back on that, and I th think it was a really great decision for me as uh, somebody writing because it really made me invest in um, in writing and thinking about why I'm doing the, the things I'm doing. I think my first, it's really introspective stuff and 
but uh, you know I was writing about why am I writing on LinkedIn so I was exploring that um, the experience of doing the things that um, that I was doing um, so I think to Luke's point about writing to the person you were two years ago I think I'm probably still right I'm probably writing to the person that I am now and actually that's a really useful I think probably quite a useful transition that I need to think about is to to sort of get out of my own head a little bit and start thinking I, I mean I do write for my audience but also um, um, starting to think a little bit more about uh, who the audience is um, and I think to to Sarah's point uh, you know this this idea they 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 all hate me um, I think <laughs> I think it's obviously quite extreme but I think there's also something quite true in the fact that you know once you step out of an organization you kind of realize that no one cares about you in the nicest possible in the nicest possible way and I've had these conversations with people and I and you very quickly have to get used to the idea that people are not thinking of you in the way that they they did you know I've been uh very fortunate to find you know when I've been contacting old uh people that I used to work with in different organizations I, you know I've had a really nice reception um, from that but 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 even still you're not the first thing on those people's minds when they get into the office you know you constantly have to you're constantly having to to put yourself uh, front and center and um, I've been watching a little bit more closely your stuff on LinkedIn Luke since we talked before uh, the Christmas holidays um, about your approach and I, I read up on the a little bit on the flywheel approach which which I found fascinating and and in a way I suppose I'm probably doing in a kind of organic sense but I'm getting to that point now as I say where I where I'm having to put some more thought and structure into what I'm trying to do and why and also think, thinking about why the things I'm doing are working as well so um yeah entering a new phase I think I just wanted to speak to to what you just mentioned, Liam, and what you said, Sarah, like, will they hate me? Will they care? Will they like these thoughts were constantly in my, my head and are, are still are. But I realized that as time went by, your boundaries kind of kind of expand as well. I remember the first time was, well, anyone comment okay someone commented then will anyone disagree with me what, what will I do then then someone disagreed and I I managed that situation and as time went by just by putting myself out there I realized that not only like my offering evolves but I evolve as well and what I can deal with evolves as well so uh, yeah, but well, imposter syndrome is still a bit there, even if it doesn't show. Um, but yeah, a very nice reflection. Yeah, and just to yeah, just to speak to that, uh, Lavinia. I think there's a really great case in point there because it's not just about how we're writing about our own things, but it's also thinking about how we communicate with other people on these platforms as well. And I think it's a really great case in point because I think our relationship built out of. Um, me maybe disagreeing with some of the stuff that you talked about <laughs> online you know there in, you a, go. In, in a very gentle way but no I mean you 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 know you pose some uh some interesting and challenging questions and uh, and what I really appreciated was that you were receptive to um what was there and and a conversation and then a relationship and then some a little mm -hmm. bit of uh collaboration and now this has kind of emerged out of that it's a really it's a really good case uh good case in point 
I think that mindset of posting on LinkedIn, not because I know everything and I want to share, share it with the world, like from this place of authority, but rather from a place of, hey, I'm learning as well. That actually helped me a lot with being more authentic, more open. And yeah, just having the courage to to post um, marketing, right? <laughs> <laughs> I, I I couldn't agree more with all of that. And I, I, I found the more I talk to people quite often about this, like there's this, there's this potential idea that you have to be the, the messiah online and bring all the answers and stuff, which is completely the opposite way to approach it. And exactly as you've described, I've found that my role is not to be the messiah. It's to, it's to bring people together. It's to to, to host interesting conversations. It's to move the dialogue along. It's to be occasionally the antagonist if that's necessary. It's to, but it's all about moving the conversation along for the wider community, not bringing all the answers and be, being the Messiah. And I'm quite open in, I'm very open in fact, like most of the time in my newsletter is like, I learned this thing this week. This is how I think you could apply it. Like, it's not like I've spent a decade doing this really specific thing and now i'm going to tell you to do it it's like no this was really cool i think this is a really nice interesting way you can apply it and then that sparks other people into going okay i'm going to experiment with that and then they come back and tell me i did this this was the this was the output it worked as expected or it didn't and that, that's really fun so you know you can just use it as an opportunity to have an ongoing dialogue with the community not to be having an ongoing education of that community Oh, wow. That's so valuable. I am making notes everywhere, like digital and on post-its and everywhere. I would have to summarize. Um, what I am very interested about is the context in which you're operating. So it's L&D, people, teams. And I wonder what are the learnings that you drew from working with this specific group um, on the topics? Because I'm just talking like from my perspective, we are very attached to our vocation, right? So there is this constant, there is this prone to learning, but actually not making space, so very contradictory. Then we have strong opinions about this and that, um, currents that we follow. Um, I feel, I will just add a little teaser here also that we are used to getting a lot of things for free. I would just put it like there is this communities, everybody's giving. Um, so positioning yourself in this environment is quite challenging. Like I'm just saying as a side, like looking at it, I don't know how you're doing it and you're doing it great. So what are some learnings that you observed from the context you're operating? Uh, how people take what works well, also channels that you just now scratched, but just some something that might be useful hearing from, from testing and trying um, over the past years. Um, I don't know, whoever feels could could give some input here. Um, yeah, I'm happy to to carry on if that's um, if everyone's cool with that. So, uh, it it kind of tapped into my. I've mentioned it a few times, so maybe now's the time just to talk a little bit about Flywheel. And if people want me to go into more detail, I can do. But the 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 way in which a Flywheel operates. So just a little bit of background. So it was introduced by Jim Collins in in Good to Great, and it's this it's an alternative to a funnel approach, right? So with funnel marketing, you have, let's just say, a product, and you're now going to raise awareness of that product, try and educate and convince people it's the right product for them, and then ultimately convert to the customer who's the endpoint. 
So that's tr the traditional approach to go to market is funnel. Flywheel is an alternative. So Flywheel works on creating virtuous loops. So the most uh, prominent example, and I think it was one that Jim Collins used himself, is, is the Amazon Flywheel. Um, maybe it wasn't an example he used, but it's, it's a good one. So the original Amazon Flywheel was this idea of we are going to um, essentially have a lower product value as the main engine of force. So we're going to make sure that we are essentially the cheapest, or at least we match the cheapest price available. We're going to drive more traffic to our website, which means that we can attract more sellers to our website, which means we can host more products to our website, and we'll focus on creating a great experience. So you've got the experience, traffic, sellers, and products, and then the low price as that driving force. And it creates this virtuous loop of more traffic, greater experience. If there's more people on the site, we can bring more sellers in, more products. And it's just this continuous, and you can see where it's got to now, right? From an online bookstore to this enormous tech giant, <laughs> like, but from this, from this very simple flywheel model. So in my context, uh, and what's important about that is it places the customer at the, the, the heart. So a flywheel places the customer at the center. And so for me, my customer, my, my ICP is a, primarily a first time head of people with a startup scale up that then extrapolates out to people ops professionals and HR professionals and on the, on the fringes of that L&D professionals. But you know, that's kind of the ICP and who I talk to is in the middle. So now what I do is I create content of value to that audience. So I've got my newsletter, which is a free newsletter. I've got my podcast, which is a free to consume resource. I, I do now monetize those in different ways through sponsorship. So it still is a product for me, but it's a free to consume value add resource for my end customer. Then my LinkedIn content too, which is which gives me enormous reach. So just from January to today, I've had over 6,000 impressions on my content. So that's 600,000 eyeballs on my content in a very short period of time. And that's all value-based content that I'm putting out there. And of course, for me, my flywheel is most people engage with my LinkedIn content. They'll find their way to my newsletter and my podcast. And then they're in my flywheel of value. My job is to give them continuous and increasing value for as long as they remain in my flywheel. And that's all free. So all of that is free. So to your point about giving away free, I think it's really important to do that because you have to evidence value and deliver value before you ask for anything in return. My flywheel also tells me what my audience want. So going back to product development, my conversations through content with my audience then shows me the main pain points that need to be solved through product. So my main flagship courses uh, or course, my people, people first product led course has emerged as a consequence of what my audience told me was they were most interested in and the content that was getting the most engagement and the pain points that were having the best discussions. So then I build product for that. And so now all that I do is make sure that they have access to buy from me when they're ready, but they've already had a tremendous amount of free value on a continuous basis for a good amount of time, which means that by the time they get to that buying decision, they, there's no longer a question of trust and value because they trust me and the value that that's going to deliver, but it's largely driven by this free value. And that's the, the flywheel. The final part of the flywheel for me is an advocacy. 
So people sharing my content, people speaking on behalf, people sharing their experience of my course is another way of adding force to my flywheel. So hopefully that answers your question in a roundabout way around the the value of free value. Right? It's really important. And I don't think I don't think you can successfully go to market as a solopreneur entrepreneur now with a funnel approach because it's too noisy. And if you're if all you're doing is trying to convince people to buy your thing, you're just shouting into a vacuum. And so it's much easier to start with a value-led approach, create a flywheel of value, and think about how to monetize that later. But build an audience, build a community around your ideas and presenting value for free. Learn from that, get feedback from that, and turn that into monetizable product later. That's that's my approach, which has so far been very successful. And to put a few numbers to that, um, when I implemented my flywheel strategy, which was April of last year, that was 10 months ago, roughly speaking, uh, bearing in mind a big uh, sort of indicator is followership. So I had 6,200 followers at that point, April last year, 10 months ago, which were accumulated over my 10 years of recruitment and talent and people ops, just general. So a non a non-specific followership. As of today, I've got over 17,000 followers. So in a 10 month period, I've added 11,000 followers that crucially are not random. They have followed me because of the content that I've been sharing during that time. So that's now 11,000 potential customers that are in my flywheel of value right now. And that goes up every single day. So that's the power of you know, a well-executed value, content-led value flywheel, is that you can build your audience very quickly. And then your job is then to figure out the way in which you can monetize that in a way that continues to add value. Because the another little ship 31 is, um, uh, insane value at unbelievably low prices is one of their models. <laughs> so when someone does choose to buy, actually hand over money for something that I'm giving, I want them to have 10x the value from that than they thought they were going to get, because that then means they're going to continue to stay in that flywheel and they're probably going to tell their friends and peers yes. about it too. So that's that's the model that I'm executing in 10 months in. It's, it's going very well. <laughs> Amazing. Yeah, this is great. So practical and also prepared, you know, like in, in very what you Sarah said, you have to be a marketer and to sell. But I feel that this is very good to think of also because sometimes not everybody has this maybe background in business. Um, most of us, you know, went different road. So I think knowing this just makes you more confident uh, and stay true to yourself. So you're still value driven, authentic, but you know how to strategize and actually make money out of it along the ride. Um, that's great. I don't know if anyone else has to, to add to this. This was a great ex example of making these channels work. Yeah, I wanted to add, I agree with everything Luke said. And one thing I wrote down, like it, I wrote, I wrote intentional free because what Luke's talking about is very, very, very intentional. And I think it can be, we, we, we can think we're doing flywheel, right? But really we're actually just creating a bunch of random funnels, you know? So I think that's an important part of like, how do we be really intentional with it? 
Um, and remember too, that like number of followers does not equate to number of sales. Um, the more intentional you can be about the followers that you bring, yes, you'll start to see an equation there. But I think a lot of people go in, okay, I'm going to create this free, you know, lead magnet. It's really what it is. They're trying to get all of these leads, all these leads, and they have, you know, maybe a thousand, 10,000, whatever it is, right? You get this number of email subscribers, but you're not actually being intentional about what you're serving them to. So it's something to be really conscious about. And I think that Luke says, right? It's like, who's, who, who is my customer? Um, for me, I look like for, for me, I have a wide demographic, but it's, a, I go back to like what, why I started this business, right? Like that values piece is really important for me. Like, what is this person hoping to have, right? Looking for a purpose-driven pe person, you know, they want to live a life of fulfillment, inspiration and freedom through their L&D career, right? So it's like, for me, it's more of that psychographic. And so everything I create, I ask like, is it talking to, to the person who has like those values, who feels that way? Um, and those are the people that I want to call into my world too. So I just think that what I got from Luke and what I wanted to add on is like the intentionality piece of it. You know, just having chat GPT create a free quiz for you and putting it up on your website and saying, okay, I have free. Um, that's not value add really. So I think that like in order for it to be value add, there has to be like, intention around it. If you're growing your following, there has to be intention around it. I know Luke said, um, or Liam said earlier about how you chose articles, like that was a medium for you that felt really good. Um, you know, and maybe it wasn't getting all the likes or the comments, but I always think for me, like I'd rather have 10 people read the article, like, really have it be like a value add to them than a thousand impressions of people just kind of scrolling through and say, oh, yeah, there's Sarah talking about your LED niche again. All right, you know, kind of keep, keep, keep it moving, right? So I think it's remembering, you know, you, like what what really is that end goal here? And it's to, to capture someone and for them to trust you. Um, and so keeping that in mind that the intentionality piece is the most important piece that you you have there. It's not just about providing free value, but really intentional free value. 100%. And and to tag on that, I, I would much rather someone unsubscribe and unfollow than to, to remain there and not be getting value. So you're so right. It's like sometimes- I love looking, I love looking at who unsubscribes. I'm like, okay, bye. Yeah, I, I always do. It's like, <laughs> I, have, I, have like I have like a moment of like, oh, and then I'm like, oh, okay, yeah, fine. Um, Because then they're, they're not, they're not the right people to be there so it's totally okay so that's another sort of ego came up earlier i'm not sure where that came from but that's another thing and and, and taking things personal if someone unsubscribes it's not a personal like, attack on you they just they're just not getting value from it and that's fine which means they're not the right person to consume it so yeah it's that intentionality piece is really important and not being too wedded to the number of followers and stuff you're exact you're exactly right it's like the quantity uh, the quality piece over the quantity piece all day long and i think um just you know just to add to that um there are a couple of things i think just on the thinking about the sort of followership online um it's very easy to get caught up in the um social media algorithm and that's the whole sort of thing about followership and that kind of thing. This is what we've been conditioned towards over the last 10 or 15 years, you know, um, and it's not helpful, you know, as we, you guys have uh, suggested. Um, uh, uh, and in terms of that sort of quality over quantity, um, it although I might not be getting the uh, likes and comments and things like that on the articles, what I have had a surprising amount of is people I speak to telling me 
that they really like what I'm writing. And for me, that's, you know, that's, and, you know, not just people who are, uh, who are my market. I have, I have friends who are professional, um, you know, content uh, marketers, you know, uh, 30 years of, of doing that kind of thing. And, and they're telling me that they enjoy what I'm writing and how I'm writing. And, and so that gave me a lot of confidence actually over the last um, few months. And um, I've recently, in fact, this just uh, this month uh, moved from writing, well, I'm still writing articles, but I've set up my own monthly newsletters. So I'm going to see how that goes. And I'm going to look out for the people who subscribe and unsubscribe <laughs> as well um as i do that um i wanted to just quickly go back to something that i think i can't remember millie's original question but just around i think you said something about being quite attached to our profession and i this has been kind of on my mind while i've been thinking since we last spoke um about when it comes to kind of value uh, on the one hand but also the influence of the kind of work that we're doing there's a there is, a, I think, a potential risk in terms of the work that we're doing that we're basically just kind of going in uh, ever decreasing circles and kind of going down the rabbit hole a bit with our own stuff. And there's some thought there, I think, um, that we, it's something we need to keep in mind in terms of what are the implications on the wider world of work that the work we're doing within our you know particularly if we're working specifically with our colleagues and peers in the hr and l d space you know it, it's very easy to get yeah become quite insular um and i've been noticing quite a lot over the last kind of couple of months or so uh there's a hashtag called hr for hr and which is kind of linked into this um uh I think a growing understanding within the the kind of people field about the impact of people work on you know on us doing those jobs and I I think on the one hand that's really uh, I think that's really positive on the other hand uh, we need to make sure that we're kind of looking out outside of the world that we're in to the like I say to the impact that we're having elsewhere. Um, I love that. And I think Lavinia as well. Um, and, and that was kind of the, the birth of this podcast as well, is bringing in different perspectives to our L&D bubble, hearing more from other people who work with people, right? Um, learning how they do about go about different challenges. Um, and look, you know, you have this layer of like product and all of marketing that brings like just exploring because we are not the only one, uh, so we, we should open and and the work we do has a bigger impact. So yeah, I love that, Liam. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, totally agreed. I think the um, I guess I have a little edge on that because I am very intentionally not consuming a lot of HR people related content. So almost everything that I consume is actually product marketing. It's it's stuff outside of the you know psychology even like it's stuff outside of the immediate profession that I consume and then my, I see my job as the, a curator of things and a connector of dots and well that works over there what happens if we do that over here where does that fit in this bigger picture of people ops and HR and L&D so my my zones of curiosity and exploration take me outside of the profession by 
by you know intentionality right because i'm i'm putting that into like my my course is you know people first product led it, it it's taking the concepts of product management and marketing and putting those into how do you if we were rethinking this if we were doing hr again what would we do it's actually well we'd operate more like a product team because that's really what we're doing we're creating a people experience subscription product and we have to treat it as such build it as such develop it as such um and so i'm, I'm quite fortunate in the sense that my actual work takes me outside of the field but even when i was a practicing in head of people most of what i listened to wasn't industry either actually i think which is why i ended up going down this route myself um i find this i think there's tremendous value in getting outside of industry outside of your profession uh, and seeing what else is out there but to touch on the hr the hr piece as well because it's kind of a tangential um concept i think post-covid we realized how hard we're all we were all working. I was I was a practicing head of people during COVID, had to navigate a startup through that, which is not easy. It really takes its toll on you, this job. Whether you're pure LND, whether you're a journalist, whether you're HRB blocks, it's really difficult. And so I think that HR for HR trend is a really positive one. And I think one that really has accelerated post COVID with us all going, why on earth do we all feel like we want to leave our profession? Like when we care so deeply about it and the people that we touch with it, why are there so many of us that are burnt out or thinking about getting out of the profession? And, and you know, part of the reason, maybe I'll speak for myself, but one of my reasons for not wanting to go back into a head of people was that I didn't want to feel that again. I didn't want to feel exhausted and undervalued and like you're, you're treated as an expendable when you give so much to everyone um so i think it's a really positive movement but we also like you say have to be careful not to get lost in you know a, a pity party for ourselves it's actually like okay what are we actually going to do about this like if we want people to think differently about hr we need to think differently in hr and it, that has to be where we start i i will write that <laughs> comment uh down i think we, we spoke a lot about so many things um about personal journeys about um designing your offering about marketing so many things but we do have like one final question for all our guests and the question is if you are to think about one advice only one that you would give to people that um, are in the position that you were maybe four years ago, a couple of months ago, two years ago, what would that be? I can go first on, on this. And it might not be what people expect to hear, but it's something that has really helped me is kind of actually on the same lines of what we were just talking about, right? Be very, very intentional with who you follow and who you take advice from. Um, I think it's really easy as a new entrepreneur to follow other entrepreneurs, a bunch of business coaches, everyone talking about how you should market. And it's really, really, really noisy out there, especially right now when the way that the economy is and the job market is, there's a lot of noise out there encouraging people to become entrepreneurs um, and saying, you know, follow this formula and you will be a billionaire. Um, and it's really easy to get sucked into those things. And I know early on for me, I did. I was following every business coach and I was trying this and trying that. And 
it was actually my coach who I worked with for a couple of years who shared with me. She said, look, you can follow whoever you want. You are free to do so. She said, but for me, I follow my coach and I follow two other people who really, you know, who I really resonate with. And that's, that's who I follow. That's who I trust. Um, and that's whose advice I take and who I seek out or who I work with. Um, and that's been a game changer for me. So I have a very curated LinkedIn feed. I have a very curated, actually, I haven't been on Instagram in months now, which has been another blessing. It's for another day. Um, but when I was on that, but I have a very curated LinkedIn feed. It probably would look very different than most people would expect mine to look like. Um, and I unfollow often, uh, like all the time and nothing against the the person, right? But like, you know, for example, like I, like I, well, I'll give a full example, but you know, there's things that will we'll, give away too much right here. Um, but there's things that pop up where I'm like, this just isn't adding value. And instead, not only is it adding value, but it's making me feel a certain way. And so I, I unfollow and maybe I go back and follow that person again later, who knows, but, um, it's my house. It's who I follow. It's informing my decisions. And so be really, really, really intentional about the advice you're taking, what you're seeking out, what you're curating for yourself. You have so much power over that, um, but you have to put that into practice. Very nice. Yeah, I totally resonate with that. You, you're definitely responsible for the curation of your own newsfeed and you, you're definitely responsible for what information you consume more broadly. That's a great, great little note. Um, what would I tell myself? Um, success isn't what you thought it was going to be, <laughs> is what I'd say to myself and happily so. So again, going back to that ambitious entrepreneur watching yeah undercover boss wanting to be the ceo of this global conglomerate i can think of nothing worse and what i've what i now define what i personally now define as success and what my solopreneurship will do for me and does do for me is enable freedom so again the, i guess the actual advice is take time to consider what success looks like for you and that might not be what you expect it to be but take that time and for me, I'm highly ambitious still. And so I do have, you know, financial goals. But for me, the acquisition of money and revenue is actually just an enabler. So that enables me to do more things in business, but it crucially enables me to create more experiences for my family and ultimately will enable me to do more for my local and, and, and global community. Because So the, the acquisition of money for me is not, the end goal as it used to be when I was a kid or you know 18 20 in my early 20s the money was the pursuit now the money is an enabler of other things um and so yeah the, the actual question is consider and it's okay by the way if money is your thing who's to tell you it's not that for me I figured it wasn't in the end but take time to think about what it is that is success in your eyes and make an intentional plan to move in that direction. And if you find yourself moving away from your own definition of success, it's a good opportunity to, to realign and recalibrate back in that direction. Can I have two pieces of advice? <laughs> Fine. <laughs> I'll try and keep it quick because there were, there were things that both Sarah and uh, Luke mentioned, which, um, which uh, gave me something to think about. So I think very quickly as a, First one, I, I totally hear um, what Sarah's um, saying. Uh, the flip side to that is always, I think, to be open to serendipity. So, you know, um, inspiration comes from the um, uh, 
you know, from all sorts of places. And I think one of the things that I have, um, that I've continued to do through the networks I'm involved in, and I think this is the wonder of, uh, you know, our, our kind of remote working world is, you know, 30 minute coffee chats that with people I wouldn't otherwise speak to in different parts of the world. Um, and I guess that, that sort of links into the, to, to the second piece, which is, um, if we're th talking about kind of, uh, different people, different background, uh, difference and stuff, um, is something we haven't touched on, which is around, um, kind of in inclusion and, uh, um, uh, support for ourselves as as entrepreneurs um and luke's comment about comment about freedom is what uh prompted this um you know autonomy is something um that that really drives me and um kind of uh, sort of closely linked to that i was um diagnosed as autistic back in the summer and i'd um i'd started exploring that a few years ago and then um gone through the kind of medical process of that which was grew up quite a lot in terms of um uh my, I've been holding this question since then about how how do I make sense of being autistic in my work and that's a sort of broader kind of philosophical question I think but there's also something really important from a a, a sort of technical perspective as an entrepreneur or as anybody working in a business and thinking about the support that we need we've touched a bit on that through the uh, HR for HR and thinking about our kind of self-care. And I think that's really important, but just to say, you know, I, one of the things that I've been uh, exploring is what support I can get um, to help me with some of the stuff that I struggle with. There is a, um, a system in uh, the UK, I think England, Wales, and Scotland, it's slightly different in Ireland um, called access to work. Um, and I, people are maybe more likely to think about it in terms of help, you know, uh, within an organization, but you can also access that as some, as a, as a business owner as well. So, um, uh, if you go on the gov.uk, uh, website and put in access to work, um, you can get access to things like, uh, you know, funding for, uh, special equipment, things like that. Um, uh, mental health support, uh, business coaching, it, you know, um, so yeah, so that's more, yeah, I th more of a technical piece that I guess we hadn't touched on so far. Thank you so much to all of you. Can, um, can I, can I, yeah, can I add one more just cause it's yes. come to me. So first of all, Liam, that's a great, that's a great shout out. Cause I hadn't even considered, you know, particularly as a solo opener, like if you have any neurodiverse characteristics or qualities what's what resources are available to you that you don't then have via a company that's a great that's a great call out so thank you for that Liam um and then on the more sort of I guess uh business businessy or, or maximum kind of thing I heard I got a great um phrase from someone which was we wildly overestimate what we can achieve in one year but we underestimate what we can achieve in 10 so another piece of advice is to play the long game play in 10-year blocks like right? don't compare yourself to who someone else is today compare yourself to who you are who you were yesterday it's like that sort of idea of the infinite game and playing in those longer blocks of time is also really important if you're going to get into solopreneurship i would say yeah okay we have to make a list of all of these things thank you so much to all of you Amazing. joining us this was wonderful <laughs> heartwarming and and i feel um 
I had the moment of goosebumps as well. So I feel each of us um, got something out of this conversation. I feel like that. And I'm so happy for listeners. <laughs> they will get this uh, this present that keeps on giving. Now, really, uh, thank you for, for showing up and, and really telling us uh, about your journey, all aspects of it, some interesting things that um, myself, I was not aware of uh, once you had this, uh, this down this journey. So thank you for really sharing this experience. Uh, very much appreciated. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for having us. Total pleasure. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to our latest episode. If you want to learn more, subscribe to our newsletter or join us in the Offbit Fellowship. Create a happy day and never stop learning. <laughs>